Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Our next guest was with us about just over a year ago, I think. His name is Mark. He's an Ontario businessman. And through Mark, we got to know his dad a little bit. His dad was in a long-term care residence. um, And he'd had a fall. And this was during the height of COVID. And Mark, thank you for coming back. Before we talk to you about what's going on with your dad now, can you just, for the benefit of the people who maybe didn't hear that first segment, just remind us of what happened. How were we introduced to your dad and to you? Well, Roy, um, you're right. It was a little over a year ago, and um, at a, a local Southwest Ontario hospital, my dad was uh, moved to uh, the hospital from his uh, retirement home because he had had a fall. And uh, it, it was kind of funny because they called me right in the middle, April 2020. It's the very height of it. And they had called me to come and pick him up. And um, I, I let the hospital know uh, that I work for a living, and I we had not shut down our operation. We were deemed essential. And I went to work every day, and I was surrounded by people, and I thought it was a bad idea for me to come and pick him up, uh, considering that he was sent there by ambulance. It's, and by the way, it's dead across the street. It couldn't be any closer, uh, his home from the hospital. But they insisted I go and get him, and uh, I did. I picked him up, and I dropped him off. <laughs> 10:30 at night on a April night, and it was uh, he was presented to me with his gown, clothes in a plastic bag. April 7th, I believe it was, and it was cold outside, very cold. And the old man at the time, uh, this is uh, you know he's 98 today, so he would have been uh, 96. And it just seemed like it was uh, get him out of here and, and take him back, which we did, which we ended up having to do. And uh, so uh, now we're in chapter two. The reason that I asked you about uh, about the first time we met you and and your dad through you is because it also dealt with the system, with the with the overall system. In this case, it was the healthcare system. And I remember you telling us that they gave him back to gave your dad back to you, presented your dad with caked blood on his face. That was they hadn't they hadn't cleaned that off, and uh, he was in this what little paper uniform with his clothes on his lap. Right. You're right. In a wheelchair. And I actually asked the nurses, uh, the charge nurse at the time, I said, Is this, would this be acceptable if this was your father and you were, you were showing up here to pick him up on a day like today? And it's a good 120 feet from the door to my car in a freezing cold day in a wheelchair. And I had this, this poor old guy was traumatized. And uh, they, they uh, you know what they did? They went and got me a warm blanket, if you remember. And they threw a warm blanket on him and said, out you go. I will never forget that conversation. I'll never forget you saying that they gave him back, gave your dad back to you. I don't know if that's the correct terminology, but it kind of feels like that's what they did. And uh, and said, you know, here he is, blood on his face, give you his uh, paper jammies with his clothes on his lap now. Off you go. And, uh, right. So here we are. We're a year plus later. And your dad is 98. Is it his birthday today? His birthday was actually on the 16th of June, 98. 98. That's amazing. Born in 1924. Um, so, a whole bunch has happened. Yeah, a whole bunch has happened. That's right. <laughs> so, so 98 years of age, 
you're probably going to need some assistance, some help. And and uh, the help is supposed to be there because your dad uh, paid taxes throughout his life and still pays taxes. You and I talked about that. So would you bring us up to date, please, on what the situation is now? Because your dad does need long-term care facility help, and the government's always there to help, right? No one. I, well, uh, so shortly after that hospital stint, 2020, just um, uh, so it's, it's really two years ago, uh, Roy, you and I may have talked, but it was April of 2020 when he went down. This is now 2022. So time flies. Shortly after that, I put in a request to uh, what we call the LIN at the time, which is the government um, Ontario facility to uh, you, you uh, fill out an application to find a long-term care uh, spot for your loved one, your father, mother, aunt, whatever, even yourself. And at the time I did that uh, two years ago, they said, well, uh, you know, and I have them in a private facility. So it's a, it's a different price point, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. The, the provincial side is much uh, more affordable, and, and at some point, it gets it gets really silly in these private places. If you, the more care you need, the more you pay. So it just it's a menu system, and it gets a bit crazy. So I applied to, over two years ago, 27 months ago. I applied to get him into a long-term care facility somewhere in Southwest, like um, you know, the uh, 401 corridor between, uh, say, Milton and Toronto. Mm-hmm. No, uh, no spaces. It's COVID. We don't have any spaces. Um, he's not. In enough, he's not sick enough or not, he can still feed himself. I would hear things like that from, from uh, the agency. What? He can still seat himself? Feed himself. Feed himself. Oh. Feed himself. He can still go to the, take a shower uh, by himself. He can still feed himself. So he's not quite crisis enough. The word crisis comes into play. They put him in a cr- on a crisis list. So that so one. This on. is the government agencies that's doing this, yes? Yes. 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 Okay. Okay. So he um, he did get. Man, I did manage to get him on a crisis list. Probably, um, I want to say, eighteen months ago. Now, they finally agreed that uh, they do an assessment after assessment after assessment. So, if you're on the phone with them and you you present your case and you say, "Look, I really need some help here. I can't afford to keep him in there. His pension doesn't cover the cost of being in a private home, as he needs." more care the more care he needs the more expensive it gets you can get the lin to help you they do send people in to help them some psws and they try and mitigate your costs a little bit by by providing some services but it doesn't come close to covering so as you know we had a quick conversation last week it, it is getting it's out of hand so i i can no support i can only support this the difference in cost from his pension and and his CPP, and of course his old age pension, uh, it doesn't come close to covering. So I've been emailing on the phone almost daily uh, to these people to try and get them moved. So it's been a challenge. And they say, and just going back to our conversation of a few days ago, that he has to be a, quote, perfect match? Correct. For a facility? What does that mean? I'm not sure, but what I, from what I can determine, uh, Roy, it goes like this. They uh, did another assessment on my father. I'm sure this is a routine on all people that apply for uh, for long-term care spot in a provincially run facility. And they do an assessment. And then they present the case to the homes. 
And if the home doesn't want to take on this particular patient or a, a citizen, not a patient by now, it's a citizen, uh, they, don't, they don't have to take them. They can refuse them. So I was told um, very, very, just very recently, because uh, he, he's in critical now, he's in palliative care. So now it becomes even more of a burden on the province, of course, to take him into a provincially run home. It takes a lot of resources to deal with a palliative care person, and I don't think they want any part of it. So they said to me, it has to be a perfect match, and they make you fill out a form. What homes in your area would you accept as a location? So you fill out the form, you tick off the top six that you would prefer him to go to, which for me was geographically driven. Hopefully our, you know, my... He's got grandchildren that are nearby. He's got a, uh, uh, my brother's uh, wife is still here. My brother's no longer with us, but she's local. So we're trying to keep him within a 25, 30 minute drive. But none of those places would take him because they weren't, or he is not a perfect match to their facility. Gee, perfect. perfect That's quite a word, eh? Perfect. That's quite the word. It has to be a perfect match. And if it's not a perfect match, we're not accepting them. Now, that's government-run facility. In other words, it's taxpayer-funded. And all of this was supposed to be getting much better. But apparently, it isn't. So, uh, Mark, your dad's 98 years of age. He's in a private facility now. And you would like to transfer him, if you can, to a government-run facility because it's it's terribly expensive to uh, to to have your dad in this private facility. Give us a bit of a sense of, of what they do. I mean, I was shocked when you said to me, there's extra cost to feed him. <laughs> there is. Um, so, in a, well, I've only been in one uh, private facility group. So there, there's many of them in, in Ontario and Canada, I'm sure. Um, but the all of them, I, I, and I can't imagine they're, they're like any other business. They have to be competitive. So I'm assuming, I'm making an assumption, that most of these private uh, facilities are run the same way. So you are provided with um, a care a plan. They call it a care plan. So they do an assessment and they say, uh, you know, based on his needs, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give them his, his pills in the morning and in the afternoon. We're going to bathe them every other day. Whatever the whatever the whole packaging uh, encompassing what your needs are, and then they give you a price. So when my father first went in, uh, 10 years ago, he was 88, and uh, he couldn't handle uh, dealing with himself day to day, so we made a decision, and he was happy with that. The cost at that time, Roy, was uh, just over $5,000 for a pretty nice place to keep him there. Okay. Three squares a day, not too much in the way of other services. He could still manage himself pretty well. Mm-hmm. 10 years later, now needs palliative care. And I've been trying to move them into, as you mentioned, a, a government-run facility because the average cost of there for palliative care is around 4000 3800 20 even in the high twos if you're really uh, desperate financially and the government does that, take that into account. So depending on your financial position, they'll establish what you got to pay. And if you're a perfect match. You're going to need to be a perfect match. Yeah. And uh, right now, uh, for my father, it's $9,800. That's what it is. Per month? Yes. What do you get for ninety seven, ninety eight hundred a month? Ninety eight hundred. Well, you get you get pretty good service, and the Lynn's in there helping, and they do keep them nice and clean. Mm-hmm. 
but last week, uh, just the day before I talked to you, this is what enraged me, and I, I ended up reaching back out to you because of, of that particular uh, day. I went in to see him. Um, there was a young lady feeding him, and she kind of startled when I walked through the door, and she said, the nurses told me not to feed him. I said, okay, what? the nurses told you not to feed him. So there might be a medical reason. As you get older and you're in palliative care, you do aspirate and, and you know, eating solids doesn't work. And sometimes even eating is, is a chore. Yeah. So she, she was just a, a very young girl and she was a bit startled and she apologized and left the room. I went to the nurse and I said, what's going on? And she said, well, you know, he's, we're giving him some new medication because he's, he, he's and this is true. I'm not holding this against the, the facility whatsoever. I mean, he does have, he's old, he's, he's going to pass away soon. And there is there is some secretion going on in the back of his throat, so he doesn't eat very well. So I, I understand. But what shocked me was the call I got later on that day. Because I called back in after I left. I tried to see the, the, the person in charge of all of this, uh, who I talked to quite often. She wasn't available, so I left, and she did call me back. And I said, you know, I'm a little disturbed, even just applesauce. She said, well, Mark, you know, in your care plan, you're not paying for us to feed them. And we've been um, we've been trying to help you by talking to the Lynn, and they've sent in they send in someone to feed him uh, once or twice a day, so that you don't have to pay for that. So they contacted the government agency, and the government agency sent somebody in to feed him once or twice a day. I wouldn't imagine your dad eats too much. He did. He, in all fairness, Roy, he, he's on his last legs. But the point isn't that. I'm just trying to make the point that it's not that big, a, not a, not not arduous a task for them to feed your dad. Certainly not. So, is your dad aware of of what's going on? Uh, unfortunately, he is. He is still has most of his marbles. I mean, anyone in that situation on on their way out, and we and uh, you know your loved ones, and we've all seen it uh, in one way or another. Whether it's a, a sickness, in my dad's case, it's not sickness; it's age. And he's just running out of time. Um, but you can, when I go and see him now, of course, he's not, they've got him, and they, they give him whatever they need, but they call it pain management. Of course, that's what it is. And at the, because now he's bed sores and he hasn't been moving for the last month or two. And it, it's been rather, um, it, it, it was going to happen at some point, but that's, that, the, the, the challenge to me is when someone tells me, that I'm not paying to feed him. If it's two minutes, maybe five at the very most, to put a couple spoons of applesauce, when I look at his eyes, I know that he knows what's going on to a degree. Enough that I know. I mean, I'm his son. Other people might not. But my sister-in-law was in there the other day, Roy, and she felt the same way. And you're paying $9,700 a month. Yeah, plus 98 and change this month. and change, and they, <laughs> they won't feed him. I mean, it's just, and the, and the public system wants a perfect match. Yeah, it's 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 disturbing. It's deeply, deeply disturbing, Mark. And I know that I'm going to be seeing a lot of emails over the next number of days from people in different parts of the country who are probably going through something similar. In the few seconds we have left, what, what you have no option, do you? No, uh, I have none. I will ride this one out. I'm. I. I it's not that I can't afford it, Roy. It, it's never. It was never about that so much. I, we're fortunate in our family that I'm able to pick up the difference from what my dad's net income is to what it's costing. 
but it's for really at the end of the day if this is happening to me i know it's happening to other people and they probably don't have the option of covering the cost the bis is the bank of for international settlements the bank for international settlements and what the bank does this is what i read is that uh, this bank the bis is the bank for the world's central banks like the bank of canada so i guess the bank of canada has a debit card that it inserts into the machine outside the Bank of International Settlements and gets the billions and trillions of dollars that are required. Probably not. Professor Eric Cam joins us, professor of macroeconomics at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're going to talk about this because the BIS is warning that our elevated financial vulnerabilities are, quote, historically unprecedented. And I just uh, editorially added, doesn't sound good, eh? So is that how it works, Professor Cam? The Bank of Canada has a debit card, and they stick it in the machine outside the BIS, and then they just get all this money pouring out? Is that how it works? Hi, Roy. Well, you know, actually, yes. I mean, you know, other than there is no actual physical debit card, but the BIS is basically owned, it is a bank that is owned by 63 central banks across the world. And that adds up of about 95% of gross domestic product in the world. So the same as you bank at a bank, like one of the big five, I won't mention the names, they bank at the central bank. Well, the central bank has to bank somewhere. And so the BIS is one example and a huge example of where the central banks of the world park their money and they borrow and lend also. So. It's, a lim- it's, it's really illustrating two things, Roy, that are both fascinating. One is that there are many banking systems within the banking system, and a lot of people don't recognize that, so we're kind of educating here a little bit. But on a more negative note, you mentioned that you'd never heard of the BIS, and that's probably a good thing. You hadn't heard of the BIS because nobody had talked about it because it's one of the things you only hear about when there's trouble brewing in the economy. So the fact that you and the good listenership now are discussing the BIS means that things are a little bit worse than the government had first anticipated. So so tell us what they're saying. As I understand it, let me just give you the 10-second version that I got. They're very concerned that interest rates, rising interest rates, could become endemic, and uh, and they're worried about, um, about um, just... just the spending and the debt we're in, and they have concerns about the housing that, debt that exists in certain countries, maybe like ours. But when I hear them say that um, soaring inflation and elevated financial vulnerabilities are historically unprecedented, I do get worried. I do start. I mean, it's already concerning, but has the concern um, meter just ramped up even more? Well, that's what happens anytime somebody puts out one of these statements and calls something historically this or historically that. So to to throw a little bit of water on this, in terms of what's going on with inflation right now, we can't really say it's historically unprecedented. That's not fair. I mean, it's been a long time. It's been a a good 30 years since we've been seeing prices spiraling like this, Roy. But no, what, what is historically unprecedented is just sort of the time that we live in right now because we've been faced with inflationary pressure before but we've never seen it coupled with such supply side problems. And it's really that marriage of a mess 
which is historically significant right now. So what the BIS is talking about is that central banks, especially ones like ours and in the United States, have to have a very delicate balancing act, Roy, because they know they've got to increase the price to borrow money. But you don't want to increase the price to borrow money so high that nobody borrows money and the economy comes crashing down. So that's the razor's edge right now, is that you've got to increase the interest rate to a certain bliss level, but you don't want to go beyond it because you don't want to see real gross domestic product come tumbling down. And so there's your historically significant part. It's not that we've never seen this before. It's that we've never seen a confluence before, like we're living in right now, of supply issues and demand issues, Roy. Yeah. So the cherry-picked sentence that I have here circled is from the BIS. We may be reaching a tipping point beyond which an inflationary psychology spreads and becomes entrenched. This would mean a major paradigm shift. I see all these words and I'm thinking, word salad, tell me what he re- tell me what you're really saying. Well, you see, again, I think that this is becoming increasingly problematic when we start using terms like this. What they're saying is that we hope that the world can solve the inflationary spiral before that spiral becomes an even greater spiral. I mean, using words like endemic, you're just, you know, you're, you're kind of almost preying on people's remembrances of the pandemic when we use words like that. All that they're trying to say here, so I'm trying to put out a, a minor fire, Roy, is they're trying to say, let's let's get this under control before it becomes even more out of control. Because we don't want people thinking that price increases the way they're seeing today are the norm. And that's how a, a functioning economy should be. We're not supposed to have increases the way we have today. So what they're saying is, is before this becomes normalized and people are used to seven, eight percent increases period over period, let's try to solve this subject to the constraint. Let's solve it before we put gross domestic product into the trash. And then we have an even more serious problem, as you know, called stagflation. Yeah. You, You raised stagflation on the air with us. Has to be a year ago now or maybe longer where you expressed concern that it could be on the way. What uh, what do we make of this then? Here's a story, Global News story, this weekend, posted yesterday, uh, written by Craig Lord. Canadians are in a spending mood heading into summer. What that means for inflation, and I'm just reading, uh, again, cherry-picking a sentence here, for Canadians weighing decades-high inflation with pent-up demand for travel and other experiences after years of pandemic lockdown, the answer seems to be landing on buy now. What do you say about that? What do you say to Canadians well, uh, who want to spend? You, you know what, Roy? I think, and again, I, I kind of enjoy these topics because you and I get to kind of burst a couple balloons. And I think this balloon, as we burst it, means that an economy is made up of many, many different types of spenders. And I think this really um, visualizes for us some income inequality, meaning that if you're on the, uh, the far right of the income distribution curve, then you are a person with wealth and you probably are very excited to spend that wealth coming out of a period where you couldn't spend it because things weren't open. But I would ask people before they jump up and down and say, you know, the country's dying to spend money, that you and I, I would argue more than anybody I've heard on the radio, have outlined that far too many people are on the left side of the curve. 
and are one paycheck away from insolvency. So I think we've got to remember that that is a bigger proportion of the population than the far right of the population economic wise that can't wait to get out and spend money. So again, you know, I like the sentence you cherry picked, but I would like to just go beneath it and say, sure, if you're in the top 5% of income earners, now is a wonderful time to spend. But there's a 95% that aren't that lucky, Roy. All right, so uh, let me go for the really weak metaphor here. So I'm peering into the tunnel, and all I see is nothing, just dark. And then, Professor Cam, I see a little glimmer of light. Am I seeing a glimmer of sunshine, or had I better press myself up against the wall because that glimmer of light is going to turn into an onrushing train? As far as the economy is concerned. Yeah, I mean, listen, happy Canada Day weekend. I don't want to be the downer, but um, that light is a, is, a, is a reminder. It is a warning of what can happen when central banks and governments are unable to work together to control their macroeconomic problems. So what that light should do is really remind the good listenership that now more than ever, we, we rely on and expect our government to be responsive and work with the central bank to get this under control. The BIS is right. Before we see widespread stagflation, let's work to bring down inflation by itself so we don't make a bad situation worse. So, uh, you know, a little, a little ray of sunshine, Roy, which means we're not in stagflationary times yet. And you know what? It's okay. We're not there yet. Let's cross our fingers and hope that the economy does what it's supposed to do, the government does what it is supposed to do, and stop before we get to stagflation. As you know, in uh, Congress, the U.S. Congress, there are hearings underway into, I think they're calling it the 1-6 committee. Um, so what's likely going to happen here? Uh, tomorrow is the 4th of July, the big American national holiday and we always looked to our southern neighbors as they spectacularly enjoyed their annual 4th of July. I'm not so sure. I don't know. But I'm not so sure as there is that kind of unity of spirit in the United States any longer. So what's likely to happen, though, in this January 6th hearing in Congress? Is it possible that the U.S. Justice Department will file criminal charges against former President Trump for his involvement in what took place in Washington when rioters ransacked the Capitol. Liz Cheney, who's Republican and is the vice chair of that committee, said today on ABC television that she won't rule out criminal referrals against Donald Trump. That's the vice chair of that particular committee. Some say it was an attempt to overthrow the United States government at the behest of Donald Trump, who didn't want Joe Biden's election victory of November 2020 confirmed. Um, people who uh, are on Trump's side say it was absolutely not that. So where are we? What's going on? What's the situation? It will have reverberations across the United States and certainly here and uh, around the world, whatever happens to take place. By the way, an Associated Press story of last Thursday, this past Thursday, states that more than a million Americans who voted a Democrat in 2020 have now switched to support the Republican Party. Professor Terry Madonna is with us, senior fellow in residence at Millersville University in Pennsylvania. His teaching and writing focuses on the American presidency and American political parties. He appears on all major television and cable news networks in 
the United States as a presidential analyst, issues analyst. He's also a pollster. He was with us after the uh, immediately prior to the 2020 election and right, right afterward. Uh, Terry, how are you? Oh, I am fine. Boy, you said a mouthful there in about three minutes. Uh, you're, you're right on with your comments. By the way, before we get into uh, the select committee dealing with January 6th, it's important, I think, for folks to understand how deeply divided we are as Americans. One way to look at our country right now is we have the northeastern part of the United States and the west coast of the United States, where we have you know, more Democrats and Republicans, more uh, progressives slash liberals, if you will, than conservatives, versus the heartland of our country and the southeastern part. Now, there are, account- there are states here, there, mixed throughout that are different. We have never been divided as a nation as we are today on almost every single po- major policy issue before us. And let's take the select committee on January 6th work. The Trump supporters living in, those, in the heartland of our state, essentially, uh, essentially uh, blue-collar workers, high school educations are less, uh, conservative on issues like abortion and, and gay marriage, uh, not exactly wild about climate change legislation, strong supporters of our Second Amendment, which means guns. And we are, and that's the Trump base in our country. And for the most part, I'm not saying completely, despite what we, what we, you know, the select committees work, they remain deeply committed to Donald J. Trump and want him to seek a, another term. Okay, so now when I look at this particular goings-on, when I look at what's going on in uh, Congress, but beyond that, I look at your country, I look at the United States. For me growing up, and even as an adult, it was always USA, USA, USA. Yeah. You guys were, you, you were so determined to be the United States of America, and you were going to let the whole world know how patriotic you were and how much you loved your country and stood for everything the country stood for. Now I look at the United States. And I see, and you just mentioned it, I see a deeply divided country. I've talked to guests who've actually talked about secession movements in the United yeah, States, absolutely. California, Texas, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. I started polling back in 1991, uh, and I discontinued polling. I still cover polls and write, a, you know, do my thing with them, but I haven't done polling since last year. And the fact of the matter is, I've never seen such deep divisions and extreme pessimism. Imagine this. When the question is asked on polls, is the country moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? Only about 20% of Americans think the country is moving in the right direction. I mean, that's phenomenal when you think about it. it Phenomenal. It is. So uh, let's, let's just jump around a little bit here. Okay. So Liz Cheney says today on ABC right. that she's not ruling out. She's Republican. I'm just I'm not telling you anything you don't know. She's a Republican. She's a vice chair of this committee that's investigating January 6th and by extension investigating Donald Trump. She says she will not rule out criminal reference against Donald Trump. A former federal prosecutor 
uh, interviews today saying Donald Trump needs to be criminally prosecuted. I'm asking myself this. You're such a divided country already. What happens if you criminally prosecute the preceding president for whom 87 million Americans voted? What happens to your country if that that takes place? We we become more deeply divided. You're absolutely correct. Uh, The one thing that I think the Democrats should have done and I have to be neutral about this. If the Democrats are doing well, I'll say it. If the Republicans are doing well, I'll make that point. But what happened was that Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, actually picked the two Republicans. She did not let the minority leader of the House, which typically would be the way to appoint, you know, appoint the Republican members and uh, Liz Cheney from Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger from Illinois both voted to impeach Trump. They are strong Trump opponents within the Republican Party. My sense about this is I think the same information would have come out. But now Republican Trump supporters saying, oh, this is just a one. You get my point. This is just a one sided committee. Again, I think this information would have come out. Make no mistake about it. But there's no one on the committee to take the other side. And and what does that do? Given how deeply divided we are, you agree with that. It, it, it just convinces the Trump supporters that this is just a put up job, that in fact, they will actually ultimately uh, refer criminal charges against Donald Trump when the select committee work is over. And remember, the House, the Congress of the United States does not have the constitutional authority to bring charges. They can only make a referral to the Justice Department, and the Justice Department has been involved in some of these investigations having to do with... uh, with uh, January 6th. Terry, I'm looking here. It's January, It's uh, July the 3rd. It's the day before the day, right? right? Yeah. The day before the day. And we have a Republican, the daughter of the former vice president of the United States, saying she will not rule out criminal referrals against Donald Trump. It's the day before July the 4th. Now I'm looking at emails uh, yeah. that get sent to me. I just received an email from a listener who is saying that both you and I because we're talking about this, me, because I'm saying the United States is divided, when he says it isn't, that it's all there for Donald Trump, he says you and I are part of the deep state cabal, and we are responsible for propagating a myth. This, a myth that we're divided? I mean, we're telling the truth. No, but this is how emotionally... And, and, hold on. It's not you and it's not us. It's the American people are saying this in poll after poll after poll, regardless of the of the nature of the poll, the source of the poll. I mean, that's what I think I don't understand. So basically what happens is you have people with one point of view yeah. and or you'll get the other point of view weighing in with a completely different picture of what's going on in our in, in America. You that once I started talking to you about this <laughs> and I mentioned Liz Cheney and what she right. said, and I mentioned the possibility that Donald Trump might face criminal charges, and I don't know how they—I don't know that how that happens. How does this? How does the Justice Department say we're going to risk further massive unrest in this country by laying a criminal charge against a former president? That's that's a tough call to make. Maybe it's maybe it's a call yeah. they have to. Maybe it's a call they have to make. Yes yeah. or no? Well, but I knew as soon as we did that, we'd, we'd get pushback. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, absolutely, and and again. The supporters of Trump will say, well, look, this committee was rigged from the very start. They aimed to get this. I think politically at the beginning, 
they I, I don't say that some didn't didn't think that criminal charges could uh, could could ultimately be brought. Uh, but at the beginning, it seemed to me it was about uh, Trump as a politician, you know, making sure some Democrats don't want fear if Trump wins, he could win. Other Democrats fear that they either want him to run against the weak uh, Joe Biden, which we can talk about. Uh, however, when you get down to the Justice Department, they're going to look at the evidence and see if they file file uh, uh, criminal charges. I'm not I'm not going to predict they will or they won't. Some of it, it seems to me, didn't boil down to, you know, basic criminal charges like this big debate over what took place when Trump said, I want to go to the Capitol. He knew that there were individuals, groups of people like the Proud Boys here who had weapons. He said, take me to the Capitol, take me to the Capitol. Uh, they're not going to the weapons won't be used against me. And then there was this debate about, did he grab the steering wheel from the driver? Yeah, did, did he do this assault assault against Secret Service? Okay, that's one side. And then you have, uh, then you have a, uh, an NBC reporter, Peter Alexander, who said, oh, I talked to Secret Service people, and they said that didn't take place. You get my point. So you're getting... Terry, we have about uh, four minutes here, so I want to compress some things. If uh, so, so we, I think it's it's in a, it's an agreement that if there are criminal charges brought against Donald Trump, that is really going to tip the United States. That's going to be an emotional roller coaster, and who knows what would happen then? But what you 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 follow voter patterns and follow political parties, and you 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 know the stuff. What's going to happen in November, the uh, the midterm elections? Yeah. How is this going yeah. to impact? Well, we have to start with the fact that in. Uh, that uh, the midterm elections since World War II are referred to as the midterm curse in the United States. In 17 and 19 of them, out of 19 of them, the party that's held the presidency has lost the midterm elections, meaning seats in Congress, and in many cases, actual control, particularly of the House. Mm -hmm. And right now, the problem is uh, President Joe Biden's job performance is below 39% positive on a real clear politics average. 39% positive. That's lower than Donald J. Trump's was during his presidency. I and think in the price is at 39. I know, I know. But look at what we have with inflation. Horrendous. And it's, it's the kind of inflation that hits people where they live. What's that mean? Oh, you go into a grocery store. That's right. Prices up. If you can find what you need, the, the supply chain problem, uh, baby formula. How about when you go to fill up the, your, you know, get 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 gas? We talk I about mean, it here all the time. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And many Americans believe that Biden didn't do anything sufficient to increase the supply of of, of gasoline. Uh, I live in a big natural gas state, for example, uh, in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, the fact of the matter is the economy is President Biden's most serious problem. And by the way, midterms have nothing to do with whether or not a president can win reelection. Uh, Joe Biden says he's running for another term. We'll have to wait to see if that, that holds true. Yeah. Yeah. But guess what? 
Ronald Reagan. Terry, I, Terry, I have less than a minute, so I have to ask you this. Okay, Do you think Donald Trump's going to run in 24? Will he, will he have the opportunity or will, or will they shut I him down? Think, you, you can't rule it out. You cannot rule it out. I think if he, I, from what I hear, if he decides to run, that might make it more difficult to prosecute him Do as a candidate think, for the presidency. You understand the presidency better than most. Do you believe that he would have an opportunity to win in 2024? I think it will be, I, to be candid with you, I think it will be very difficult. And we don't know what's going to happen with Biden. What I was saying before was you can lose a midterm. Ronald Reagan did. Bill Clinton did. Uh, Barack Obama did. And guess what they did? They won re-election, regardless of whether you're talking about a Democrat or a Republican. Okay, so Mr. McTagg, founder and president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, you're kidding, right? I mean, you have to change the name of this uh, group of yours. There's no such thing as affordable energy, Dan. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to um, maybe uh, advocate for lower energy costs, maybe uh, wishful thinking uh, affordable energy. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. Uh, because I went and filled up my buggy this morning, and the price was lower. It was like a bargain at a buck eighty-six point nine. And then I had to put the 91 octane in, so it went back to 213 a liter, and 100, and, I forget what it is, 100, 143 bucks, I think it was. 143 bucks later, I'm on my way. With one tank of gas. It's just insane. <laughs> so, perspective, please. <laughs> we, um, so, so, so let me, I'm yeah. sorry, let me be a little more clear. Sure. So what we do uh, with you, and uh, thank you for doing this, we look down the road five days, the next five days, and particularly in the five provinces where we broadcast directly. So Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia, although we're everywhere. But what is going to be happening as far as fuel prices are concerned in the next five days? What should people be preparing themselves for, particularly in our five provinces? Well, look, the lower mainland, uh, Vancouver and Ontario, saw a decrease in the order of about 15 to 17 cents a litre. Unfortunately, that didn't happen for uh, Alberta, uh, B.C. interior, uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And that's really uh, the result, Roy, of uh, gas stations holding on to those, uh, uh, those drops on market prices. In other words, it's costing them uh, a lot less now to replace the gas they're selling. And I would have expected... Uh, anywhere from a 10 to 15 centiliter drop. Instead, we, we didn't get anything. So the, the, the week ahead, uh, one would assume that gas stations uh, in the West will, uh, you know, will pick up the, the message and will pass on what is otherwise uh, a very troubling and very disturbing um, you know, effort by uh, stations not to respond to market forces. And I think that's very, uh, very telling. I mean, I've never seen a circumstance, Roy, where gas stations in Calgary charging a dollar ninety one point nine and a dollar eighty eight point nine in some places in Edmonton are actually picking up thirty two and thirty three cents as a retail margin. You and I began twenty eight years ago talking about this uh, this problem of independence being wiped off the map. The problem, however, is that at twenty eight cents a liter to thirty three cents a liter, uh, that's beyond uh, what I think is economically acceptable and suggests someone's got significant market force and they're flexing it to the detriment of consumers. Yeah. So we have provincial governments lowering taxes. Federal government won't do that. They should, but they're we're steadfastly refusing. Um, so provincial governments are lowering taxes. Ontario did that a couple of days ago. Alberta did it a couple of months ago. 
British Columbians would would love to see that on a regular basis. But um, are the retailers then, some of them just pocketing that reduction and and more? Is that the the story? Short answer is yes. And we have seen uh, uh, the price signal for all of Western Canada comes out of the Chicago spot market. We've seen gas prices there drop in Chicago about 45 cents a gallon to 55 cents a gallon from their highs of almost four bucks a gallon down to about 320, 330. Um, and over the past few weeks, I've been hoping that, uh, you know, these savings would be passed on to motorists and they have it. And it's uh, obviously a, a real concern of mine because it, it really reduces the ability for me to talk about, you know, the federal government, uh, you know, learning on ever more taxes and making prices that much more expensive. Uh, and at the same time, defending the free and open market. Competition would bring those prices down, and there are some stations that are bringing those prices down, but the vast majority are sitting on their hands. And uh, Roy, I, you know, it's not lost on me. If you're making 33 cents a liter, and even if it costs you double what it cost you 10 years ago, I had someone going back and forth this morning with me on averages uh, or uh, percentages, and I said, look, it does, any way you slice it, when we saw 140 oil back in 2008. The retail margin was seven cents a liter. Okay, right now it's 33. There's no way the price of energy is for the oil is 400 dollars a barrel. What I'm really saying here is that we have a, a circumstance in which gas stations are ironically making it uh, very easy for uh, you know our uh, those on the left to make the argument that we should be regulating prices uh, because this That's is right. tantamount to gouging. Yeah. So is there? Just building on that thought for a moment, is there any regulatory reality that can drag these gas stations in, in, into line? No, and it probably doesn't need that, Roy. It just needs to have a bit of transparency. I I said I wouldn't talk about this until I waited till yesterday, and I think Calgary Herald uh, picked up the story um, and ran with it. And I, I laid out the numbers in very, very simple layman terms. Here's what it's costing gas stations to buy their fuel. Here's the taxes. Uh, here's the difference between what it's costing them and what they're selling for works out to over 30 cents a liter, which is double the most generous of uh, retail margins in the country. And so, I, you know, I'm not here to take out gas stations. Quite to the contrary. I, they, they play a very important role. But I think there's a point at which the, uh, there, there's a sense, uh, rightly so, by consumers that they're being abused. And I think it's up to gas stations now to, you know, smell the coffee, look at the numbers, and realize maybe it's time to... Uh, uh, you know, avoid pickpocketing and fleecing consumers. Okay, so tell me again where this is happening. So this is happening in Calgary, Edmonton, so all of, all across Alberta. It's happening in Saskatchewan. It's happening in Manitoba, where there's still over $2 a liter. Can you believe it? Uh, you know, taxes are uh, still higher in Ontario. Now. Well, that's, you know, it's not the taxation issue. It's really uh, gas stations, uh, you know, making it. Making way with, uh, yeah, making way like, making way like bandits. I, I'm hoping this will change. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 